Villas Grace Church. Building relationships that make followers of Jesus. Know, grow, go. To know Him, to grow in Him, to go with Him. We continue in our sermon series, John, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. At this time, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning to worship you, to bring you honor and glory. Ultimately, the purpose of doing so is because you are the author of life, which includes salvation. Lord, you have rescued us from the penalty of sin through your Son, Jesus Christ. Our faith in him is what has secured our eternal salvation. I pray that we can be a church that continues to rely upon that good news, the only good news, the gospel, as we can share our faith with others. We pray this in the name of Jesus himself. Amen. Some of you may be familiar with C.S. Lewis. He's a famous Christian author. He has a very famous quote that many have used throughout time, and the quote goes like this. There are actually... Three explanations that C.S. Lewis contends that actually would explain who Jesus is. It states this, it's very simple. Either he was a deranged madman, a diabolical deceiver, or exactly who he claimed to be. It's one of the three. So who did Jesus claim to be? Because we know Jesus is who he claimed to be, but who exactly did Jesus claim to be? Well, we need to back up just a little bit because a month or two ago we were in John chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. I'm going to read these verses for you. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I and myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. A few other examples from what we've already covered in the Gospel of John would include in John 3.13, he claimed to have come down from heaven. In John 3.16, he claimed to be the source of life. In John 3.17, Jesus claimed to have been sent from the world from the Father. In John 4, verses 25 through 26, he claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus claims to be God. And we believe that he is who he has claimed himself to be. Now, I would like to read an expert from another book from C.S. Lewis. This is from the book Mere Christianity. It goes just like this. C.S. Lewis writes, A man who was merely a man said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. 
he did not intend to. Brothers and sisters, either we believe Jesus is who he claimed to be or we do not. It is just that simple. Up until this point in the Gospel of John, few actually believed. We don't see a long list of those who up until chapter 7 of the Gospel of John are actually believing in Jesus. This small list of individuals that we know believe in Jesus from what we've already seen in the first seven chapters would be John the Baptist, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, Nathaniel, the people of Sychar, the royal official, and not to mention the 12 disciples in which he chose. Now we know it's truly 11 if you subtract Judas, but then again, Jesus being who he claimed to be, God himself, he knew that Judas was going to betray him. Unfortunately, though, as we've already noticed, not everyone, the many, the large crowds, did not believe in Jesus. They didn't believe that he was God in human form. In fact, we should remember from two weeks ago in John chapter 6, verse 64, I'm going to read this verse for you as a way of reminder. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe who it was that would betray him. And this brings us to the title of our sermon this morning. And that title is this, The Messiah's Message. The Messiah's Message. Today we're going to be in the text of John chapter 7, specifically looking at verses 14 through 24. Last week we were encouraged to know that abiding by God's time leads to discipleship and it leads to salvations. When we allow ourselves to be part of God's timeline, when we submit ourselves to His time, discipleship happens and salvations happen. We recognized also that Jesus took full advantage of the time allotted to Him by God. He did so by focusing on what we just said. He focused on discipleship. He didn't worry about the large crowd or attracting more. He concerned himself with discipling the twelve in which he chose. Instead of concerning himself with those large crowds, we're going to see today that Jesus will accuse the Jewish leaders of manipulating the law. So as we transition from last week where we saw Jesus taking full advantage of the time allotted to him to disciple and to bring people to a saving faith that led to eternal life, today we're going to see him go to the temple and transition to the Jewish leaders who were manipulating the law. And masterfully, we cannot forget this, Jesus, as you see this account this morning, it was so masterful. He will use circumstance and accusations to share his gospel message. As we pick up where we left off from last week, just prior to the Feast of Booths. So let's go ahead and get into our text. John chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. But when it was now the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple area and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, not having been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. 
If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know about the teaching, whether it is from of God or I am speaking from myself. The one who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did Moses not give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why are you seeking to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all are astonished? Jesus answered them, I did one deed and that in which you are astonished. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And even on a Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on a Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry at me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge by the outward appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Amen. These verses put into one sentence to become our main idea is actually an application for all of us. And I want to encourage all of you to apply this sentence to your life. And that sentence simply states this. Let the law provide, provoke you to faith in the Messiah. Let the law provoke you to faith in the Messiah. Now, we must remember, as we look at verse 14 here, that his brothers had ulterior motives. Their motives were the same as the large crowd. See, they wanted a king to provide for their temporal needs. And that's what we're picking up right here in verse 14. As we know from last week, Jesus' time had not come, which is why he did not go with them. And we've already covered that. However, he did go during the middle of the feast. This is when the negative talk about Jesus actually would have been at a fever pitch. After all, in John chapter 5, verse 18, it says they were seeking all the more to kill him. The whole first half of the feast, the Jews and the Jewish leaders specifically were looking for him. Because last week, in chapter 7, verse 11, they asked the question, where is he? The Jewish leaders wanted to know, where is he? Yet our Lord and Savior was fearless. He knew that they were looking for him. And he still went during the middle of the feast when the negative talk about him was at a fever pitch. And despite what we know from John 7, 13, again from last week, as it says, no one was speaking openly about him because they were fearful of the Jewish leaders. They were afraid if they said anything that they would suffer the consequences. See, the Jews wanted to take him quietly. That was the whole goal of the Jewish leaders. They wanted to be able to snatch him up and do it so nobody would notice. But since Jesus was actually coming, not at the beginning of the feast, because if you remember, he was on God's time. He said, my time has not yet come. If he were to come at the beginning of the feast, they would have been able to accomplish their mission. 
They would have been able to snatch Jesus up very quietly and whisk him away and kill him. But Jesus, as fearless as ever, came at the middle of the feast when the negative talk about him was at a fever pitch. Their plans were actually thwarted. The Jewish leaders then had to divert to plan B, which is actually, according to God's time, plan A from the beginning. Again, what did Jesus say in John chapter 7, verse 8? He said, my time has not yet fully arrived. Though Jesus hadn't seen his time fully arrive, because we know that that time in which he was talking about happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was actually taken and then led off to his crucifixion. That was the time that he was talking about. He wasn't talking about this feast. So he was free and clear to go to the feast, just not on the timetable that his brothers wanted him to go. When he did arrive at the temple, though, it's very interesting, and we're going to see this for the rest of our time this morning. When he arrived at that temple, he began to preach. And we see this in verses 15 through 18, because right here in verse 15, we begin to sit at the feet of the best public speaker, the best teacher, the best preacher from all of history, past, present, and future, that anybody has ever heard. And the Jews were, as it says right here in our text, astonished. They were astonished at what they were hearing when Jesus began to preach. See, they could not believe that he had such a mastery over the scriptures. That's why they were so astonished. And this mastery came with no formal education. And this leads us actually to believe that when it came to communicating God's word, Jesus was accurate, Jesus was precise, So we don't see them accusing Jesus of being inaccurate. We don't see them accusing Jesus of not being precise. And that's not what we're seeing. They did not accuse him of these things. The Jews were actually astonished because Jesus was educated without having received a formal education. So the Jews had to go to that plan B, and they began to develop a campaign to discredit his teaching. They knew he was accurate. They knew he was precise. So they knew that they had to question his credentials. And that's what we're seeing them do. Basically, the Jews were saying this. He hasn't been to the rabbinical schools that we've been to. So his teaching must be subject to his own Opinion. That's basically what the Jews started doing to Jesus. But Jesus, in his response, it is so brilliant how he handled these Jewish leaders. Jesus, what does he say? Right here he says, My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. Jesus' response actually paralyzed their attempts to discredit him. So contrary to Jesus, the Jewish leaders were in fact formally educated from the rabbinical schools. And their education was subsequent to their credentials. So this is kind of like 
the pot calling the kettle black. That's basically what we see the Jews doing here. Or it's like someone living in a glass house and throwing stones. See, rabbis stood firmly upon the shoulders of the rabbis who actually went before them. Former rabbis injected their opinion into God's law just to make it so the present and future rabbis had a base to base their own opinions on the former rabbis. So their credentials were verified on the opinion of man. Do you see where we're going here? The Jews took the law, manipulated the law, reinterpreted it, based on their own opinions, and then all the rabbis that came after them saw what the former rabbis did and just copied what they were doing, but not actually teaching and preaching according to God's law. They were now preaching and teaching according to a man-made law. That's why the, the pot calling the kettle black. That's why they're in a glass house throwing stones. They're accusing Jesus of doing exactly what it is that they do themselves. Brothers and sisters. Now, I'm not going to say any more than this right here. But I will say this. Do we not see that today? Whether it's pertaining to religion or not pertaining to religion? Sometimes those who are doing the very things themselves accuse others of doing what it is that they are doing. In other words, the Jews were just preaching to the choir. This was prophesied by Ezekiel in chapter 34, verses 2 and 3. This will be on the screen for you. You can follow along as I read. Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to those shepherds, this is what the Lord God says, woe shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should the shepherds not feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. So as we go back to verse 17, we understand that verse 17 is actually a litmus test. Brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus' teaching, if you know that His teaching is from God, you're willing to do His will. Jesus is asking sinful man to humble himself and obey God's Word. Humble submission and obedience is actually God's will for us. Now, Jesus makes a startling accusation right here in verse 18. See, a false teacher fulfills his own will. A false teacher speaks from himself. A false teacher seeks his own glory. After all, according to C.S. Lewis, I'm going to go ahead and read that quote that we had at the beginning. Either he was a deranged madman, a diabolical deceiver, or exactly who he claimed to be. Clearly, Jesus neither speaks from himself nor seeks his own glory. His teaching is from God, the Father who sent him. We know he is who he claimed to be because Jesus, as it says, came seeking the glory of the one who 
sent him. One commentator says it brilliantly when he says this. It's not surprising that the Jewish leaders rejected the one who sought God's glory, since they were the ones who receive glory from one another. So as we move on to verse 19, Jesus actually doubles down on his accusation. Again, the Jewish leaders were only preaching to the choir. Of course they agreed with Jesus that Moses gave them the law. They're not going to disagree with that. But it was the fact that not one of them carries out the law. That was the problem. In fact, no one can keep the law. There's not one of us that can keep the law. This is why the Jews reinterpreted and manipulated the law. They needed to justify their own sinfulness They made new laws based off of the law. And they ended up with 613 additional laws. Laws that they knew they could keep. See, what they were doing, they understood that the Ten Commandments, they they knew that they fell short. Because they thought that salvation was achieved by perfectly keeping all ten. But since they knew that they couldn't keep all 10. They created 613 more things that they knew they could do, therefore earning God's favor based upon their work so they could earn salvation. There's no need for a Messiah. If we could keep the law ourselves, no need for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, again, no one has ever entered the kingdom by keeping the law. The purpose of the law is quite simple. When we look at the Ten Commandments, The whole purpose is for us to have our own sinfulness revealed to us. The purpose of the law, then, is to reveal our need for a Savior. That's the point in which Jesus is getting to with these Jewish leaders. Only Jesus could uphold the law perfectly, yet they sought to kill Him. Because they'd rather achieve salvation on their own work and not the work of Messiah. Now, verse 20 actually exposes the accuracy of Jesus' accusation because Jesus now has accused them of manipulating the law, but now it's verified as being accurate. It has everything to do with their manipulating of said law to achieve their salvation. Because only those who are being led by those who make new laws based off of the law would respond to Jesus' question with such resentment. They responded to Jesus the way in which they responded to him in verse 20 because they were following men who had manipulated God's word. And that's why they were resentful. What they say? They accused him of being demon-possessed. Instead of accusing him of being demon-possessed, they should have recognized him as Messiah from Scripture. They should have been reminded, they should have remembered Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, and this will be on the screen for you as I read, which states, I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. Ask it of me, and I will certainly give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This reminds me of last week. 
When we began chapter 7 of John, where Jesus stated, the world hates me because I testify against it. And the world should hate us too because we testify against the world. This is Jesus breaking them with a rod of iron. He's going right to their system, which is based on man-made opinion. So as we continue on in verse 21, he moves on from the resentful comments about killing him by stating this in verse 21, I did one deed, I did one deed, and you all are astonished? Off one simple deed? This is in reference to his healing of the sick man at the pool in Bethsaida from John chapter 5. Again, I'm going to read that C.S. Lewis quote. Either he was a deranged madman, a diabolical deceiver, or exactly who he claimed to be. See, this miraculous healing alone proved he was who he claimed to be. Now, in verse 22 and 23, Jesus references circumcision. And this is coming off of what he said about this one deed that he did. See, Jesus healed the sick man on the Sabbath. And in John 5, 18, or 16, we actually see this. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jewish baby boys were always circumcised on the eighth day, even if the eighth day was a Sabbath. They still were circumcised. So it was okay for them to heal one part of the body on the Sabbath, but entirely not okay for Jesus to heal a whole man's entire body on the Sabbath? And that's the point that he's getting to. Again, the Jewish leaders are just sitting here preaching to the choir. And what was their justification? How did they justify their behavior? What does it say right here? They justify it, their behavior so that the law of Moses would not be broken. Jesus is calling them out for not recognizing the fact that circumcision actually predated Moses. They were adhering to something that they were attributing solely to Moses, but actually circumcision circumcision came before Moses. Again, they were making new laws based on the law. Now, the Messiah's message had one final exhortation, as we see here. What does Jesus say in verse 24? Do not judge by outward appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is accusing them of self-righteous legalism. That's what that verse is actually saying. It's an accusation about them being self-righteous in their own legalism. Now, legalism is a term that gets used. We've all heard it. But not all of us understand the true definition from a biblical standpoint of what legalism truly means. See, legalism, and let's keep it to what we've already discussed this morning, is when you make new laws based on the actual law. That's legalism. It's the belief that outward appearances, as it says right here, trumps faith. Actually, let's just take this a step further. 
Legalism is to be like a six-year-old. You parents that have children, or maybe you've had nieces or nephews or grandchildren, you've seen this. Six-year-olds are great. They'll go to their parents. They think they're doing something spectacular. And they'll be like, Dad, Dad, or Mom, Mom, or Aunt, Uncle, whoever it is. Look, look what I can do. Look what I can do. And you're just sitting there watching them. And you, you act like you're impressed, right? Knowing full well what they're doing is really just not that impressive. Might be cute and entertaining, but you're not really truly impressed, are you? Because after all, what can a six-year-old really do that's just that amazing? That's what we're like. We're like little six-year-olds before God when we adhere to self-righteous legalism. It's like us. We're doing what we're seeing the Jews do here. We're making new laws based on the law. And we're going before the Lord saying, look at me, God. Look what I have done. Aren't you pleased with me and my work? All the while thinking pleasing God based on our work will earn our spot in the kingdom. We think that our work and what we can do will earn us salvation for all of eternity. So as Joe comes up and joins me, brothers and sisters, we need to be careful. We have absolutely got to be careful not to judge by outward appearance. This applies not only to how we judge others, but it also applies to how we judge ourselves. On the contrary, righteous judgment, as it says here, is actually faith-based. It's not about the outward appearance, but rather the inward reality. I just want to share these words from William McDonald. McDonald states this, Works which seem perfectly legitimate when performed by themselves seem absolutely wrong when performed by the Lord. Human nature always tends to judge according to sight rather than according to reality. The Lord Jesus had not broken the law of Moses. It was they who were breaking it by their senseless hatred of Him. Brothers and sisters, the Messiah's message is simply the gospel. It's grace alone, it's faith alone, In Jesus alone, righteous judgment judges a heart who has saving faith in the work of Jesus. Anything else is to judge based on an outward appearance. And this is the reason why when we look at the law, we should allow our main idea to encourage us. As it states, let the law provoke you to faith in the Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue to learn to fellowship in a way that encourages us in you, I pray that you prepare us to disciple. I pray that you prepare disciples to be discipled for the ultimate goal of replicating discipleship 
as we know that discipleship is a byproduct of salvation, and if discipleship is happening, we know that people are being saved. Use us to expand your kingdom. We pray this because Jesus has made it possible for us to pray directly to you. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, look us up on our website, www.villasgrace.com or drop us a line via email, connect at villasgrace.com.